0: Welcome back to the best autumnal podcast, Beethoven walks into a bar where things just keep getting cooler. The apple cider is spiked, and we leaf nothing undiscussed.
1: Oh, dear. Uh, Oh,
0: boy. I'm Mike Gordon, Principal Flute of the Kansas City Symphony.
1: I'm Stephanie Brimhall, the Director of Education and Community Engagement.
0: And I'm Jason Sieber, the
2: Associate Conductor. Who wrote that horrible joke? (laughs) And why are you two rolling your eyes at me right now? (laughs) (laughs) Well, guys, our season is off to a terrific start. We welcome back Full capacity audiences to start our classical season, performing Mahler One and Gabriel Kahane's new piano concerto heirloom to all of our amazing fans who we missed dearly. It was so great to see Hell'sberg Hall full again with with all of our favorite people. Uh, they waited seventeen months to come back and join us, and they sure let us know just how happy they were to be back hearing live music by our incredible Kansas City Symphony again. It was a memorable weekend for sure, and now we have one of our favorite returning guests in town this week, Mr. Ben Folds. Uh, We have the music of John Williams coming up October 22nd through the 24th, which I am super excited to conduct. And then we continue on with some really terrific classical programs in October and November.
1: That's right, Jason. And we, of course, sat down and talked with our illustrious music director, Michael Stern, on the last episode and talked about our second classical weekend. Check it out if you haven't listened already. Uh, And next, we have the honor of welcoming the first of many guest conductors we'll have on our classical series throughout the 21-22 season. Peter Ungen is no stranger to the Kansas City Symphony. He was last here just in January of 2020, shortly before the pandemic began. Uh, He led the orchestra in a program of Brahms Haydn Variations, Vivian Fung's Dust Devils, Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto with Nancy Zhou, who was also a guest on our podcast a few seasons back, and Beethoven's First Symphony. So I am so excited to have Peter back here in Kansas City on the podium coming up on Halloween weekend. Uh, for our third classical series, and even more excited to have him here with us on today's podcast. So please welcome to the show, Maestro Peter Unjin.
0: Thank you very much. Hi, Peter. Hi, how's it going? Welcome. Thank you. Well, welcome. We are uh, so excited uh, to have you back in Kansas City, and and me especially because as we were talking about uh, before we started, uh, I I missed you when you were here back in January twenty twenty. So uh, I'm really looking forward to our concert together coming up. You were here for the start of our Beethoven's two hundred fiftieth birthday celebration, which unfortunately didn't last very long but uh, you you kicked it off for us uh, beautifully. What has this last period been like uh, for you? have you how have you been spending your time? what did you learn from all this I I hope and assume you're you're back to conducting some concerts now but it was it was a long stretch where we were all just kind of at home wondering what to do yeah what to cook. <laughs> um,
3: <laughs> uh, yeah we planted a garden outside and uh, had our own vegetables and see my wife is a very good cook so I never really dared go in the kitchen but since I was at home all that time she started to prod me and say come on you know let's let's see what you can do so I actually learned <laughs> quite a lot about cooking I mean I always liked to cook but uh, but that was really an interesting aspect of it you know, and the other thing is it depended a lot. I mean, ev- for everybody, this experience was very different. For some people, it was absolutely torturous, you know. But for somebody like me at this stage in my career, after traveling for so many I mean, decades, literally, and constantly traveling, to be told that I actually have to stay at home was kind of a shock initially. And then like, wow, this is a treat. Hmm. This is how m- most people live. Yeah, Like they mm-hmm. sleep in the same bed for many, many nights in a row. It's incredible. <laughs> Um, and the the other fortunate thing for me was that because I have this affiliation with Yale School of Music and I don't live very far from from Yale uh, here in Connecticut, I, I was actually doing a lot of work with the Yale students and the string players were playing. So we did like all, almost all of the great string repertoire and, you know, made videos of it, whether they'll ever be streamed or not. You know, we all made quite a lot of videos during that period of time, all spaced mm. out six feet away and wearing masks and stuff like that. You know, how much of it will actually end up, you know, being revealed? I, I don't know. But so for me, that was nice. And then starting in, in January already, I was actually doing quite a lot of guesting with various orchestras like Atlanta, Dallas, Indianapolis. And, but, you know, careful traveling. Once we were all vaccinated, I was vaccinated back in March. So I was a little bit more relaxed about things. And then this past summer, my festival in Colorado uh, in Boulder actually took place in full swing with about you know one third to fifty percent audience capacity depending on the on the week uh, so I, I, you know, I feel i 've been extremely fortunate and i 'm very aware that a lot of people had an extremely difficult time through this period so uh, I, I know i 'm one of the lucky ones yeah
2: yeah you know peter in in addition to being a wonderful internationally known conductor you 're also an extraordinary violinist and of course, you're probably most known as being the first violinist in the Tokyo String Quartet for quite a while. Tell us, take us way back, and just tell us about your musical path and what led you to conducting. Because I think you got a little bit of the conducting bug when you were a student at Juilliard. I read. You're right. Um, did you always want to be a conductor, or was your focus almost entirely on chamber music? Tell us about how how that path worked. Yeah, out. Yeah, it,
3: it. You know, it's an interesting development because the. The two things, you know, can happen simultaneously for many people, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, you you look back at that. I was always interested in conducting because I did a lot of choral singing. So I observed, you know, I mean, instrumental playing when you're 8 or 10 or 12 is usually not on a particularly high level, right? So you don't really see the impact of a conductor. But young singers um, can perform at an extremely high level. You know, you look at the Vienna Choir Boys, for example— and I was at a little school in England, which had a very good choir, uh, good enough that Benjamin Britten actually used us for several recordings.
0: Wow. And mm.
3: th- so the first time I realized what a conductor could do was when Benjamin Britten came into my little school choir room to actually audition us. Uh, we were singing the Friday afternoon songs of Britain, and we'd worked on them. And our choir master was very good. I mean, you know, for a little school choir master, he was extremely good. But he wasn't Benjamin (laughs) Britten, obviously. And when Britten came in and started to cajole us and move in his way and share his musical energy with us, it was unrecognizable, the way we sounded. Mm. And I was really struck by that. Um, And then I think as I was in sort of high school, also in England, I started to conduct a few groups, little brass groups, string groups, this or that. But... Violin was always my thing. I mean, apart from soccer, I re- what I really wanted to do was play for Chelsea, but <laughs> that didn't happen. So, um, <laughs> so th- then I came to Juilliard uh, when I was nineteen in New York, and I—you st- I, had to take a second study, and so I chose conducting, and that was really great. Um, and one day, in my beginning of my second year, Herbert von Karajan came to Juilliard to give masterclasses to the five conducting students. One of whom actually was Myung Hun Chung, mm. um, an extraordinarily fine conductor, of course, today. Um, anyway, Karian was very nice to me. I was concertmaster and I was playing solos in Brahms symphonies and stuff like that. And um, so he asked me on the second day if I conducted. And like a fool, I said yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know why he asked me. So he actually... At the end of the session, he left 20 minutes, and everybody in the room, which included Seiji Ozawa and Christoph Eschenbach and Kyo Wah-Chung and uh, the people from Deutsche Grammophon and Columbia Artists, yeah, everyone in New York, right, uh, you know, was thinking, ah, oh, great, now Karajan is going to stand on the podium and show exactly what he's been talking about these last two days. Um, but I had a feeling that he had a different idea, and sure enough, he said, oh, now, ladies and gentlemen, the concertmaster will conduct.
1: Oh, my. And everybody oh uh,
3: laughed their heads off, thought, this is going to be hysterical. Well, of course, Karajan was very clever, right? I mean, with the question about that, he knew that a um, student orchestra would try to play their very best for the person who wasn't actually a student conductor, but was one of their own. Hmm. So I conducted the slow movement of Brahms one, and they played amazingly. I've no idea what I was doing with my hands. All I can tell you is that Karajan was about two and a half feet from me, covering the music, saying, you know it. You don't need to look at the music. Wow. wow. And um, <laughs> it, it was it was an incredible experience. And and, and then he was complimentary about my um, my hands. He said, you have very natural hands for a conductor. If you ever, you know, think about doing that, just want you to know that. So that never leaves you, right? Some, no. Somebody like that. Anyway, um, everybody thought I was going to give up the violin, but I... I, you know, I loved playing the violin so much, and uh, I also some people have that gift to be like Simon Rattle or somebody like that. You know, to be 20 years old and and feel that they have this authority to tell people who maybe twice or three times their age what they what they want them to do musically. I wasn't one of those people. I I felt like I needed to really earn the right to. I mean, by playing what ended up being 2,000 concerts as a violinist. And then what happened was that I developed something called focal dystonia. Um, you know, Leon Fleischer, Gary Grafman, and many, many people have have struggled with focal dystonia. And it really makes it difficult to play. Uh, and I was, by my late 30s, I was not at all happy playing the violin. Uh, and so I I just felt, okay, this is the new path for me. Uh, i'm I'm being directed uh, to do this this it felt like to me, so that's what happened
1: you know the so the educator side of me really i mean, I, I so admire that experience that you had because I, I mean, if you kind of think about it, if he had had a different reaction or a different response or given you a different tone of feedback or something uh, in that in that moment, that you know that first moment of your conducting experience that had the potential to, you know, kind of change your view or your perception, um, you know, on on what, you know, ended up being your career and, you you're know, the thing right. that you're meant to do.
3: Abs- I mean, you know, this whole idea, what, what is the taste in your mouth from something? Right. And, and it's why what we do when we have young people in a hall is so important because it's that first impact that they never forget. I remember going to the Royal Albert Hall... And hearing a, an orchestra play, you know, it was a whole bunch of kids, like thousands of us, right? And I was just overwhelmed by the feel of it all. I never forget that energy. And so, yeah, Herbert Von Karaj, I I have to say, I'm very, very grateful to him for giving me that feeling of, of comfort.
1: You know, um, I admire our music director here, Michael Stern, for many, many reasons. He's a wonderful person. You know, he does such a, a wonderful job engaging our audiences and working with our orchestra but one of the moments that will always stick out to me we had a a younger soloist on stage with us and he had kind of a memory slip or or something that happened and i think it was in a concert and the young man got up and walked off the stage and you know was very frazzled and watching michael in that moment kind of take that moment and know that like whatever he said in that moment to this young person was going to be so impactful in how he continued his career. I mean, you know, it was kind of a, a hard and, you know, potentially devastating moment for him because he had lost, you know, what he was supposed to be playing. And he got up in the middle of a, believe it was a performance and, and left the stage. And Michael was very you know, understanding and knew what, how to talk to him and knew how to kind of nurture that. And I, I really think that that was a huge moment for that young person, you know, just kind of having that and, and knowing that, that kind of guidance from somebody with a career like Michael's. I think that was really cool.
3: I mean, Michael is an incredibly sensitive human being and uh, not unlike his father, he has a phenomenal way with words. I mean, Listening to Isaac's I can remember so many speeches Isaac Stern gave, uh, just quite apart from what he did as a violinist. It, it was uh, incredible, and Michael grew up around that and inspired by that. So uh, he, he comes by it very honestly. Yeah.
2: So speaking of childhood experiences, I mean, you grew up in Toronto, correct?
3: Actually, only till I was five. Oh, so okay. I have very few memories. And then my family moved back to, to England, to a little town called Purley in Surrey. Okay. And that's kind of where I grew up.
2: Did you ever have the opportunity to hear the Toronto Symphony before you left? No,
3: not not when
2: I was oh. that young. I
3: didn't hear the Toronto Symphony probably till I was in my early twenties, actually.
2: Oh, okay. Because I knew, you know, of course, you eventually became music director of that orchestra, and I wondered how cool that must have been. Well, it was many cool. years later if you had heard it. You <laughs> it know, was, it as was kid, cool but...
3: enough, even though I hadn't heard them. I mean, the idea of becoming a <laughs> yeah. music director, you know, in, in the town in which you're born, that's pretty rare, actually. Yeah. It it just yeah. doesn't happen that often, so yeah, it was a it was an, an enormous privilege, and it's a, it's a great city. Of course, it has so many yeah. cool things going on and great sports. Of course, you make everybody becomes a hockey fan when they when they move to Canada. That's like <laughs> the most important, you know. They have four seasons um, in in uh, in Canada. It's uh, summer hockey, hockey, hockey.
0: Nice. Uh, yep. So I'm I'm curious to ask you about something you, you touched on a few minutes ago. So, you know, many conductors also, you know, either have or had rich careers as performers as well. And many haven't. And you not only played in your Juilliard Orchestra, but of course, you know, really carved out a career for yourself in chamber music. So I, I'm just, I'm so curious how that aspect of your career shaped your conducting, you know, maybe in a special way, because I I often feel like, well, you know, every, I'm sure you well know, every orchestra musician is an armchair conductor, right? Like, you know, oh, how come this guy, oh, he should have done, if only he'd, you know, this, I could have you know. Right. We're, all, we're all grumbly. So I, but obviously, I I have no business getting up in front of an orchestra, <laughs> and I know that. So I, I just, that journey from, you know, player, Orchestra player, chamber player to conductor is is very curious for me, and I'm just I'm so fascinated by how that experience you know shapes shapes your viewpoint when you're when you're on the podium.
3: Yeah, well, um, I mean, I also had quite a lot of terrible experiences as a soloist, right, with with really bad conductors, <laughs> <laughs> you know, making it almost impossible to play, um, and then occasionally an incredible conductor, like uh, oh. Akiyama who was music director in Vancouver I remember every time I played with him it was like you could do whatever you wanted it's like he read your mind and he had such beautiful hands and 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 many other you know really good conductors. so I really felt the difference when you're playing as a soloist uh and I mean there were several times I played with with the Toronto Symphony and one of them the conductor was just appalling it was like playing with a completely different orchestra uh so no names are going to be mentioned. It's many decades ago. <laughs> the, but the other thing I did, um, you're right. I played you know, at the Royal College of Music. I played in the orchestra and in Juilliard. But when I was a student at Juilliard, I played in Orpheus. So mm. apart from the fact that I, I think I see music very much from a chamber music point of view, uh, and I'm, it's not only chamber musicians who do that, right? I mean, Daniel Barenboim loves to say that when he plays the piano, his left hand plays chamber music with his right hand. You know, so, so, <laughs> and for him, that's probably true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you know, everything is changed music. But playing in Orpheus as a as a as a kid was really informative because, of course, there's no conductor in Orpheus. And I remember the first time I played in Orpheus was somebody got sick and I was called and I flew down to West Palm Beach and they used to play in this great big hockey stadium. And the first piece, what? Well, no rehearsal, right? First piece, Schubert Five. And I just remember the wind starting, like, miraculously. Nobody gave an upbeat or a (laughs) downbeat. The winds start and then, you know, just everybody perfectly together because there was nothing to look at. All there was to do was to listen. And therefore, the listening was so heightened. And I think my approach to conducting is that actually you have to know when the orchestra really needs something. And you also really have to know when the orchestra actually only needs to be invited to listen to each other because that's where the great ensemble comes from. Hmm. Great ensemble doesn't really come from following a beat unless it's the Rite of Spring or something you know, highly rhythmic. Um, and even then, it's only to establish the first two or three notes and then great ensemble comes from feeling. That, you know Great orchestras like yours have an incredible internal rhythm Otherwise, they would not have good ensemble. They couldn't possibly be just following Michael or whoever's on the podium for every beat, right? So it's all this business of listening and reacting. And I find that th- th- so beautiful about orchestral playing. Th- there is no great, uh, greater example of human cooperation than a symphony orchestra. Mm. You know, with greatest respect to you, Tim, as a rock musician. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> what, do you jo- what do you enjoy, Peter, about... Guest conducting. I mean, you've been music director and you are music director of of several orchestras throughout your career. You mentioned, you know, traveling all the time on the road. So obviously not sleeping in a different bed in every city and, you know, figuring out what the best restaurants are. But when you get to work with an orchestra, especially, let's say, the second or third time around, uh, what do you enjoy about guest conducting as opposed to working with the same orchestra all the time?
3: Yeah, um, that's a very interesting, you know, difference actually what i if i have a nice chemistry with an orchestra the first time is can be really lovely you know uh, i mean i so enjoyed that was the first time january 2020 that i'd been in kansas city and i i just loved the musical spirit of the and the sincerity and the the sensitivity and the power and the accomplishment i mean and the whole of course you know that's another thing right the whole is huge, right? For, um, <laughs> it is. So when you start to go back more frequently, um, then, you know, there's always this business. It's like, how many times do you go to your friend's house? You know, uh, after a while, it starts to feel a little bit like you're very at home in somebody else's home if you go there very often. And if you go to an orchestra very often, then you start to feel that relationship and you you know people. I mean, I tend to know musicians Possibly more than most conductors, because I just so many. I've just been uh, also, first of all at Yale and places like Aspen, um, wherever it's been. I've I've met a lot of people, and I'm probably you know they can tell like I'm quite approachable, and so I like to find out how people are doing in their lives if I haven't seen them for ten years. I mean, just last week in Iceland, several people came up to me and said, you know, I played under you at Juilliard, or mm. you know. Th- th- some some other situation where they had a job previously, so uh, yeah, it, it's this gradual uh, becoming more comfortable with a group, um, but but also it's just discovering what it is that they have to say that's particular, right? You know, I think conductors tend to they all make a different sound out of an orchestra, but I think it's a it's a mistake for a conductor to come in and say I have an ideal and I'm going to insist that that I get this ideal. No, you should you should figure out what is, in Kansas City, What what is the character, what is the personality of this orchestra? And how then do I mesh my own wishes and desires best with what's in front of me? Because it's a lot of, you know, as we said earlier, it's a, it's a lot of great musicians. They've all had fantastic educations. They're all brilliant players that never would, wouldn't have got in otherwise, right? And then they play together constantly. So they have their own personality. And I think that exploration is, is really interesting.
2: Yeah, I'm a big sports fan, and it, it's honestly a lot like coaching because when you inherit a new team, so, you, know, you might have a great game plan that worked well with another team, but this is a different set of players with different skill sets and different personalities, and, and it's finding how to get the best out of the, the, the players you have and, and shaping, like you said, Putting your own touch on what already exists and working together to make the best possible outcome. I think it's a neat comparison, myself.
3: For sure. No, I mean it's interesting. My, my nephew is a, has played in the NHL for many years and, and played in various other leagues. Now he's in the German league, and it's so true. He's been in for, played for many different teams, and it's really interesting to observe the differences in how he has to behave yeah. depending on what team he's, he's oh, has cool. gone to.
0: Yeah, I think it, it's beautiful the way. The way you just articulated that because there's something there's something a little odd in a way about about the experience, you know, of a guest conductor. You don't really get the opportunity to get to know each other that that much, you know, that you make you may come once every two or three years for a week and we just have the hours we have in rehearsal. And then we put on a performance, which is actually a very, um, a very intimate experience in a way. And yet we don't know each other. And I think the way you articulated that is, is really beautiful. And it can be difficult for an orchestra actually to, you know, to learn, to understand a conductor and what they, not what they want, but what their, you know, what their gestures mean even. And I think, Mm -hmm. um, I think having that sort of collaborative approach in that way is, is really beautiful and it, it makes for the most successful performances. So well, you
3: make a very good, I mean, I've always thought, let's say we're doing Brahms two, uh, you know, it could be anything, but let's say we're doing Brahms two and that's the first rehearsal and nobody knows me or whoever the guest conductor is. Right. And the first thing you do after saying good morning is that you start playing music that is so tender, that is so intimate and so glorious and like something we all worship. It's like, like, how, so we have to be completely open to discover each other very quickly. There's no other situation or scenario that I can think of in life where total strangers have to exchange such unbelievably intimate feelings Mm. instantly. I mean, Mm -hmm. even actors, they don't go straight in and, you know, do the first love scene, right? You know, they get to know each other, they go for a tea, they, you know, the director has a long chat with them about stuff and it, but it, so it is an incredible thing.
0: Yeah. Well, talk a little bit about uh, this program that you're going to be doing with us. We're playing uh, Florence Price's tone poem, The Oak, uh, the Richard Strauss burlesque with Janice Carissa and uh, Rimsky-Korsakov's Scheherazade, which of course is a staple and a, and a favorite. I think it's been, oh, I don't know, maybe six, seven years since we've played that, if I really? can vaguely recall. I don't know, someone will have to Correct my memory, but it's been a while it's been a while. So tell us a little bit about this program. Well, I'm, I'm very excited about doing the Oak, because this is a
3: tone poem by Florence Price that went actually unpublished for a long time, and she, she wrote an extraordinary amount of, of great music, and, and she was, in a way, the, the real champion among African-American female composers um, in the early part of the 20th century. Um, Chicago Symphony even performed one of her symphonies. Um, brilliant, brilliant woman, and this piece has been ignored, uh, and it's actually really, really beautiful. It's very dark, very exciting, and and intense, uh, and uh, you know a, t- a totally new discovery. I'm I'm sure the orchestra's never played it right. because very few orchestras have ever played it. We have not. It. So I'm. It's about eleven minute piece, uh, and and full of great drama and then we go completely in the opposite direction because the Strauss-Burlesque is kind of an outrageous piece. I mean it sounds like um, Chopin and Liszt on cocaine or something you know, to, it's just outrageous <laughs> <laughs> and I mean a, a lot of, he was very young when he wrote it, 21 or something like that um, and a lot of his mentors frowned upon him because they thought it was just not serious enough but it's unbelievably flamboyant and it's it's very, it's unique in that it has quite a lot of conversations between the piano and the timpani, which is really an unusual idea. I don't know if you got it from maybe that extraordinary moment—the first four notes of the Beethoven Violin Concerto was mm. just the timpani, which still is astonishing when you think about it. But um, in any case, and it's, it's a brilliant piece uh, and takes great accompanying from all of us. It's really tricky. Uh, and so I'm I'm very excited um, to meet uh, this young pianist because I, I I've watched some of her stuff on YouTube. She's a great artist, so uh, so that'll be really interesting. And then yeah, Shahrazad, you know, as a former violinist, it's always <laughs> kind of exciting to
2: to do That's this. A piece, few solos,
3: yeah, it, but it has such unbelievable drama and tenderness, and it's so exotic. Um, and you can really explore all the orchestral colors.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and it's kind of, in the end, it's also kind of like a concerto for orchestra. Yeah. And it, it, everybody has wonderful solos, uh, even the English horn at a certain point. so uh, And and the brass are so powerful. And it's it's also scary. You know, the piece is yeah. formidable, right? It's it's very dramatic. So it's the kind of piece you go, oh, Sherazard, really? Oh, yeah, really. You know, <laughs> this is... This is this is a masterpiece, and it deserves to be played uh, as often as it is. So I'm really looking forward to, to doing it because, again, it's an opportunity to let the orchestra be unleashed, you know? Yeah. Uh, once, once you get a lot of this piece going, um, everybody can just express themselves, and uh, I, th- I think it's, uh, it's going to be very exciting.
1: Yeah. So I'm I'm especially excited about this uh, this Florence Price poem. Um, I you know have have known the name, but was less familiar with her work until actually Jason and I started doing um, during the pandemic. We started offering Zoom sessions for Girl Scouts, and we talked about you know the impact of female composers, and and we had female symphony musicians talk about you know their careers. But we kind of dove into a, a few different women composers and Florence Price was the first one that we talked about and I've noticed and I don't think it's just coincidentally that a lot of orchestras are starting um, I've seen her first symphony um, on a lot of programs this season I think a lot of orchestras are really making uh, making an effort to perform works by underrepresented uh, composers whether they're composers of color or female composers which is you know why I'm really glad that she's she's on this program, but i I wonder if you would just share your thoughts on the importance of you know a wider representation of composers and performers and and how you know if what what that importance is for the future of orchestral performances yeah,
3: of, of course, I mean you know it's uh obviously living in that era, I think she was born in about eighteen eighty So you know, growing up as a a black woman, I mean, when she went to conservatory, she claimed to be Mexican. I read. Oh wow! Hmm. Yeah, so that that she'd be more accepted. Um, But you know, a huge struggle to be taken seriously, to be given an opportunity, and it is one of the great things that's that's happening now in the last year or eighteen months. Uh, I I kind of discovered how great. Her music was through a string quartet, an A minor string quartet, um, which has an andante cantabile, which is absolutely stunning. And I I decided to um, orchestrate it. I mean, just for strings. You know, I just Mm -hmm. created a string version. and I've done it in a lot of places. Um, And it's staggeringly beautiful music. Um, It it has a kind of Vorjak quality to it. Uh, But the symphonies are really powerful and actually have been played, but rarely yeah, um, and I believe Dodger Gramophone just came out with the first and third symphonies, or about to at least, with Philadelphia Orchestra. Um, so yeah, this is something that's happening. Uh, I'm discovering all kinds of music, uh, and and now you know when you ask to program this this kind of music, people are saying yes, please. Whereas yeah. just two years ago, saying oh, I'm not sure we can sell that or whatever, you know. Right. So. All of a sudden, the door is open, and what a wonderful thing that is!
1: Why do you think the door? What What is it about these last eighteen months that have changed that? Because I we've certainly noticed it, and even here in um, Kansas City, you know, we've done a lot of chamber music uh, outdoors, or we've reco- you know we've recorded quite a bit of stuff, and you know our musicians are exploring you know on their own more diverse music and are playing a lot yeah. of Valerie Coleman and Jesse Montgomery and you know we're we're hearing a lot of that but what sure. is it about these months
3: well and one one could guess that you know suddenly the floodgates were opened yeah and 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 maybe the the image of George Floyd was really an incredible catalyst uh, mm-hmm. for us all and the knowledge that this kind of thing had had been happening I mean is right after the George Floyd thing, I called a wonderful young composer called Joel Thompson, who actually is now a second opera done by Houston Grand Opera mm-hmm. um, but he's still a doctoral student at, at Yale, and I'd heard some of his music and thought it was absolutely stunning uh, and I called him and said, um, Would you be interested in writing a piece inspired by the, uh, the narrative of James Baldwin, uh, who was one of the most eloquent?" Activists, um, you know, of of any time, and, and uh, just a, a brilliant writer, uh, and we I premiered that piece uh, about two months ago, actually, in the Colorado Music Festival, but there is a huge amount of interest in in the talent of what we might call you know underrepresented or minorities, and and it's a, it's a wonderful thing,
2: mm-hmm. it really
3: is. Uh, so I'm doing a tremendous amount of music, William Grant Still. Uh, And, of course, female composers. And I just recently discovered, I don't know if you know the composer Lira Auerbach. Oh, yeah. She's absolutely brilliant. And I just discovered her first symphony. Huh. Wow. It's so powerful. 32-minute symphony. So, you know, one of the things that Joan Tower said to me about when I was doing this concerto for Orchestra uh, just last week in Iceland, she said it's so wonderful because, you know, that piece was commissioned in 1991, by St. Louis, Chicago, and New York, but do you think they've programmed it since?
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
3: probably not, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, a few orchestras have played it here and there, um, and it's a masterpiece. And audiences just eat it up. It's so brilliant. So uh, suddenly we have this opportunity, if not even an obligation, actually, to say, "Listen, trust us. We're the Kansas City Symphony. You know, you know who we are. Yeah. We're not going to." Put music on that is is not great in some way, but if we're not playing Tchaikovsky, uh, you know, or or Beethoven, or whatever it is that you're comfortable with, trust us, we're going to be playing great music. We're going to put together a program that is really interesting for you to hear. And I, I'm I'm thinking that all of this is a movement in a positive direction.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well said, Peter. I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately uh, because you know, w- at least in Kansas City here, we we always play new music. But more often than not, and it's not deliberate, it's just there's only so much time to explore any one type of music. You know, you play a piece once and maybe never again. I mean, even Scheherazade, like I said, we haven't played in six or seven years. So, you know, how does something enter the repertoire? The repertory? How does something become familiar, you know, if you don't play it again? And what if Beethoven premiered his third symphony and then it wasn't heard again for 50 years? Yeah. So I think, I think now more than ever, it's... It's so important, you know, that we're hearing music of underrepresented composers, but just different music yeah. than than just the the core, you know, repertoire that we've played over and over again, you know, for years. That's why people like it. So, if you know, I think if we share more different kinds of music, um, and we don't
3: have to eliminate that repertoire, of course. I mean, we would play a lot. You think about how many programs you do. I don't know. Is it even classical series? Maybe eighteen or something. I don't know what it is. There. some orchestras are 16, some are 26, you know, it's like huge amount of programs. So, so why do we have to, you know, be so afraid to put on music that we really know people will love? It's also a little bit about how to combine the programs, mm-hmm. you know, and, and Michael's an expert at that at that kind of thing. He's so thoughtful, he's so experienced. And, and combining programs is very important, right? So or having festivals. Yeah, and Something I loved to do uh, in the many years I was in Toronto was I'd, I'd do different festivals um, all the time. I mean, one every year I did something called the New Creations Festival, which was only living composers, and that was two weeks. But then I did, you know, for example, we did a festival of Bartok and Strauss, who were like unlikely contemporaries, although they mm. sounded, they started out sounding very similar. They went in very different directions. Um, I did one. Rachmaninoff and the Impressionists, because that was also contemporaneous and very interesting how they branched off in different directions. And so, you know, there's a lot of of different ways to frame or package programming, which piques people's interest and makes people want to talk about it, write about it, uh, and even discuss it at home or with friends. Right. So. I think we have to be very, very clever in in how we present things.
1: I think you're absolutely right, and I also we before we before we hit record today, we were also chatting a little bit about, you know, how how we introduce children to music, and um, and I think I think this is a big a big part of that is it, being careful not to, and I've said it probably a hundred times on the podcast already, but being careful that we're not, you know, we're not patronizing kids by only playing them, you know, it, the the stuff that we think that they're going to like the the movie scores and the um you know the stuff they may have heard in cartoons and things like that. That's that stuff is all wonderful, but there's no reason like you said that students can't sit and listen to the Dvorak cello concerto, you know, and be totally engrossed in that performance and then and then take that and transfer that into their adult lives you know and, and you realize yeah. you know m- music isn't just you know william tell that the, you know the last 3 minutes of william tell you know it can be right we, uh, we set them anything. up
3: for incredible disappointment we if do. we if we just play the best hits and that it only lasts 6 minutes and i mean you know let's face it one of the big differences between art music or classical music or whatever we want to call it and most other art forms maybe not including jazz but is, in fact, is the length of things, you know, that, that um, I mean, the, the, you know, Hey Jude is an incredibly long song, right? By far the longest Beatles song that, that, that sparked the uh, comedian to say, I'm going to do all of the Beatles songs now, but I won't do all of Hey Jude. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but if we just, if we take away, the, the, maybe one of the most important aspects of the music that we play, which is that it has an epic quality, it is a dramatic journey that takes uh, 15, 30, maybe even 45 minutes to experience. And I'm not talking about Marla 3 now, you know, but <laughs> I, I firmly believe that we train them not to be able to listen for very long, yeah. uh, you know, and they blame Sesame Street for that sometimes, you know, the, <laughs> one, one of the great shows, right? But they say Sesame Street made people have attention spans of about three or three and a half minutes or something. But I, I don't think it's Sesame Street's fault. I think part, part of it is that we as educators are afraid of giving young people something that they probably would be totally engrossed in. Uh, I, I could I could imagine them being engrossed in, in a performance of Marla One. I mean, it's yeah. so dramatic. There's so much contrast. There's so much rhythm. There's so many echoes of other worlds and different moods. You know, what... Why would they get bored?
1: Well, you know, and so you made an incredible point that, I, I, honestly, I'd never thought of. I mean, you know, you, your kids can sit down and play video games for hours if you let them. You know, I mean, they have the ability to focus for that amount of time. If you give them something that they, you know, they're interested in focusing in, and you, you can give them the the context for it, and you can give them, you know, you can set them up for it in a way that, It'll be sure. successful.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, and and making them understand that the way they listen is part of the performance. Mm-hmm. You know, the way right. they focus. Um, so yeah, it's 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 a very interesting thing, and, and uh, I'm I'm intrigued to see what direction we go in because I think a lot of things are changing as a result of the pandemic. I think because a lot of people had to observe their kids at home that would <laughs> never would normally have done. And they, they must have had to find ways of keeping them engrossed for more than five minutes at a time. Yeah. You know? yeah. So anyway, interesting subjects.
2: Yeah, for sure. Well, Peter, this is uh, Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. And so we're curious, what is your favorite drink? And if you were to walk into a bar with Mr. Beethoven and you could ask him one question, what would it be? Besides, I thought you died in 1827. What are you doing here? <laughs>
3: um, okay, uh, you know, when it comes to, to alcohol, unless I can get a really wonderful glass of wine, I'm actually happiest with a nice gin and tonic, mm-hmm. which is terribly English of me, <laughs> but, but that, that's just the way it goes. Um, what would I ask Beethoven? Um, oh, boy. Well, I, I mean, the little question would be, Why do you not make it clear when you write forte, forte, forte over and again that it's actually the same as Sforzando? Why why do you confuse us so much? Because it's really hard to know what you meant. Um, But the biggest question would be, um, you do realize that if you were sitting in the back of a concert hall and you heard your symphonies played most of the movements at your metronome markings, you wouldn't like it. Uh, You do realize that, right? Because that's true of Shostakovich... It's true uh-huh. of many composers that we actually know. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the the metronome markings of Beethoven are really a, a way of us understanding what the tempo character intended was, but it's certainly not a good idea with many of the movements uh, to to try to actually play them at that precise tempo. And then, of course, there's a couple of movements that are quite slow, like the last movement of the Seventh Symphony is actually quite slow yeah. in his metronome marking. So it's yeah. like, yeah, yeah, there would be some kind of question about... Metronome and character
1: awesome well Peter we've talked about um, uh, I've kind of taken some notes on on music that we've discussed throughout the podcast today and um, that I'd love to recommend to our listeners that they check out um, but is there anything you're listening to right now or you've kind of checked out over the last 18 months that you'd like to recommend our our listeners check out as well um, you know
3: if if they've never listened to Barbara's First Symphony. Um, that's a piece that is about twenty-one minutes, or depending on who's performing it, um, and so it's very rarely programmed. And it's really a stunning piece with one of the most beautiful oboe solos, as beautiful as the violin concerto. Uh So that's a great piece to to discover. Um, but I, you know, I wouldn't know where to end, I, I, I love listening to so much um, I love listening to so much music I, I listen to a lot of piano music actually because I, I just love the piano repertoire um, but I, I mean, I can I can get back to you on all that
0: <laughs> Well and it's funny you should mention uh, the Barber First Symphony, it just so happens that one Kansas City Symphony has a recently rec- uh, released recording of it Beautiful So I can't imagine Beautiful. why you'd recommend a different one but <laughs> You know, you can <laughs> that's amazing well, i mean
3: there's there's so much music that one can discover i think um on on the on the internet because everything is available on Spotify or YouTube now, so one I think one can just explore and see what what tempts one um, and if you know, listen to the first few minutes to say, ah, this doesn't sound like it's for me, just you know go to the next thing mm-hmm. I mean the lutislavsky cello concerto is an incredible incredibly exciting piece um, because very different. And there's a wonderful video of Kian Soltani on YouTube playing it. Um, and, and, and that's magnificent, but you know, if there's nothing wrong also with listening to more standard repertoire that, that you haven't listened to, if, you know, if you haven't listened to the Mozart Sinfonia Concertante for violin and viola for a while, if you want 30 minutes of sublime music, um, there's nothing wrong with
1: that. Well, I love me some I love me some so I'm definitely checking that one out.
0: <laughs> it's a concerto for orchestra too. We haven't played that That's in a right. while here that I can recall. Another great piece. Well, um, Peter Ungern, I want to thank you so much uh, for being here with us today. This is such a great chat, and as I've said a couple times now, just a great opportunity for me. To get to uh, to chat with some of our guest conductors when I when I might not otherwise. So thank you for taking this time. And uh, again, the program you're going to conduct is the uh, Florence Price tone poem, "The Oak." Uh, Richard Strauss's Burlesque in D minor with Janice Carissa on piano, and of course, Rimsky-Korsakov's Scheherazade. That's going to be October 29th through 31st in Helzberg Hall. And don't forget to go to kcsymphony.org for tickets.
1: And if you want to chat with Peter, uh, too, in person, before all of these shows coming up Halloween weekend, correct me if I'm wrong, Peter, but um, I think you're planning on joining Jason... Uh, for the concert comments pr- uh, before the show too, so you can learn absolutely. a little bit more, a little bit more before the show as well. I'll be there. Put a face with the with the voice too.
2: <laughs> absolutely, go. absolutely, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time and and what a wonderful conversation we had. Thank you.
3: Thanks, Peter. Thank you all very much. Enjoyed it enormously.
2: So if you like listening to Beethoven Walks Into a Bar, which I assume you do since you're still listening right now, please give the podcast a rating and review on whatever platform you listen to us. We'd sure appreciate it. And on the next episode of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar, we will sit down with our next guest conductor, another friend of the symphonies, and Peter's fellow Canadian for at least a while, Johannes (laughs) Debus. Uh, We'll learn all about his dual life and career as an opera conductor and symphonic conductor, as well as hear about some of the innovative ways in which the Canadian opera company is reaching new audiences. We'll also dispel the myth that Schumann was not a great orchestrator. Oh. That and more next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar.